So we are in the middle of a series of messages that are a little bit different from our normal fare, where we take things that are tremendously difficult for us to talk about in church, and then we talk about them in church. Uh, actually, one of the people who was responsible for giving me this idea is Mr. Jason Condon, who is sitting right there. So if you have been made tremendously uncomfortable, please lodge any complaints with him. Uh, so uh, we've, we've covered money, right? We've covered sex. That was a little uncomfortable for me, I'll confess. Uh, we've covered mental illness. And then today, the subject that we can't talk easily about in church is addiction. Uh, so some of you are aware of this, but my family deals with addiction on both sides. Uh, whether it's drugs or it's alcohol, this is a subject that um, hits pretty close to home for me. But as much as it has affected me and my family in a negative way, it's also been one of the most um, profound ways that God has revealed his grace to me. Um, and because it's so close, uh, this has been a tremendously difficult message to prepare. Uh, this is about the fourth draft. Um, I took the biology lesson and left that one aside. Uh, and um, my hope is that I am able to convey to you the glory of the grace of God that is available to us in Christ Jesus. Um, so in order to really discuss this topic, we do need to have a very brief biology lesson. Anybody love biology? Okay, perfect, excellent. That was about the number of hands that I was expecting to see, and that's why the first draft got left on the floor, so you're welcome. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so normally, normally in our brains, there is this chemical, this neurotransmitter called dopamine. Uh, that allows us to feel pleasure and satisfaction, right? So if something tastes good, we eat it. We, we feel that it tastes good, and that releases a little burst of dopamine. And that is, that is what drives us then to say, oh, that tastes an awful lot like another, and that tastes an awful lot like another. Um, it's what, uh, and, the, and it's the same chemical that's tied in with our motivation to do work. Right? You have that anticipation of a good feeling, you do the work, and then you get this dopamine rush when you're done. Right? Uh, mowing the lawn. You look at it and you say, I'm gonna go mow the lawn, and it's work, and it's hot, and... but by the time you're done, you look at it and you say, man, that looks good. Right? And you get this little dopamine rush, that, and, and it's that rush that enables you the next time around to say, oh yeah, this felt really good when I was done, so I'm gonna look forward to it being done. And it's that, reward, um, it's that reward mechanism that motivates you when things need to be done. And this is the God-designed way that we are motivated, right? This entire system is designed by God for our benefit. So we see this in food, right? You go out to the raspberry patch, and you see this red, ripe, juicy raspberry. Pick it, pop it in your mouth, and it tastes good. And so you grab another one. That one tastes good. And so you are, you are motivated then to put 
these beautiful, wonderful examples of God's grace in your mouth and taste how good they are. And you are fed that way. Uh, we saw that in, in personal productivity, right? In, in mowing the lawn or, or, or building something. That, that sense of satisfaction when you, when you build something and you finish it, you put that last nail in or you put that last piece on and it's done, you can look back and take a step back and say, that's beautiful. That's a work of art, right? It's that sense of satisfaction that then drives you the next time that you need to build something to be able to do it, to be able to continue, to be able to persevere. Uh, it's, the same, it's the same reward mechanism that exists in sex, right? The, the dopamine res release in sex is huge because that then encourages us to, to do what God has designed us to do. You can go back on the podcast and listen to, you know, why we can't talk about sex in church, but it strengthens and builds our relationship with our spouse so that our spouse is then associated with the greatest dopamine release that most of us encounter in the course of our lives. But as with everything else that we have talked about, that's how God has designed it. That's how it was supposed to work. But as with everything else in our world, our experience with this whole system is a little flawed. It's a little broken. Because of the fall, because of mankind's rebellion against God, the very ground that we walk on is broken, is cursed. We live under the curse of sin. And that extends to the way that this dopamine system works in our brains. Uh, this is actually a piece, going back to last week, uh, that feeds into a lot of mental illness. Right? It's things like ADHD and depression, they're both very likely tied into that dopamine system. Where you've got people who, you know, if a normal person's baseline dopamine level is like a five, they're down at like a two. And so they find it really difficult to get things done because that, that, sat, that sense of satisfaction that you get from completing a task just, just isn't there. They don't get that same sense of satisfaction. Or you have people who, whose baseline level is very high, where even the things that should feel bad feel good, right? And, and it encourages these tremendously risky behaviors. Um, it's also distorted in the way that, that we relate to our food, right? I went with the raspberry patch. That's a, that's a wonderful God-given gift to us. But we can take that too far and we can distort that. Is anybody else a comfort eater? Blue bunny salted caramel ice cream. Delicious. Oh my goodness. I could, and, and there was a time in my life that was particularly difficult and I could sit and I could eat like a quarter of a gallon of that just, just with a spoon straight out of the carton because the rest of my life felt so bad. But I can sit here and I can eat this ice cream and it tastes good. And it and I was manipulating that, um, that dopamine release system because the two foods that trigger that dopamine release most heavily are sugar and fat. You got ice cream, donuts, right? Those are my things. Those are problems for me. Um, but that dopamine release with each bite 
reinforces, oh no, this is a good thing to do. Oh no, this, this is a very good thing to do. And so you, what do you do? You keep doing it over and over and over again. And in doing so, we end up neglecting the, the nutritional needs of our own bodies because it, it doesn't, I'm sorry, it just doesn't taste good to eat celery. I just don't get that same dopamine release, right? Does anybody eat a piece of celery and just say, oh my goodness, that was the best piece of celery ever? No, you eat, the, <laughs> thank you. Yes, there's one in every crowd. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, so you got the fat, right? So, but, but it's triggering, um, but it's causing us to neglect the nutrition that our body needs in favor of these foods that trigger these dopamine releases, right? And so instead of seeking out the, few, the foods that allow us to fuel our bodies well for the glory of God, we seek out the foods that artificially cause us to release too much dopamine that tastes good, that feel good. God gave us this system to help us to eat well, but we've distorted it and we've broken it. That's what we do as human beings. We end up warping and distorting basically everything that we touch. We see this in our work as well, right? So if you get that little rush of dopamine every time that you get something done, you can distort that and you can warp that to a place where you only find reward and satisfaction and getting things done. And when that happens, we become so focused on getting things done and getting that little rush that we neglect the things that don't give us that little rush. Things like relationships. Things like listening to people. Things like taking the time to help somebody who cannot help us. We see this even in, in our phones, and this is the first time that I've ever done this. I left my phone sitting down there so I can't hold it up. But the colors, the lights, the patterns that are designed to keep us scrolling, to keep us looking, to keep us paying attention to that phone rather than paying attention to other things. That's all about those dopamine rewards. We see this as we have distorted sex, right? The idea of, uh, of sex outside of marriage is a distortion of what God has designed it to be and to do. but we've taken it and we, and we have distorted it and we have misused it and we have begun using it for our pleasure the way that we see fit to secure that tremendous dopamine release. We see the same thing in pornography use. Right? It is the exact same dopamine release that we would see in sex, but without bringing glory to God through that marriage relationship. And actually, that release, that use of por pornography, ends up functioning as an addiction, as a drug. And that's where we need to pay attention. How do drugs end up using this dopamine system? We've got this baseline. These numbers are entirely made up just to give us something to, to visualize. Right? If you've got a baseline of five in your dopamine system, right? you eat something that tastes good, that dopamine level goes up for a little bit, and then it goes back down to 
It might go up to a six and then back down to a five. Right? But when you consume something, drugs, alcohol, that five all of a sudden goes to 50. It's just completely off the charts. And so you have this tremendous, tremendous chemical reaction happening in your brain that's saying, that is saying, yes, that is what you need. That is, this is the very best thing that you could possibly do with your body. And I, your brain says, I want that again. I gotta have that again. And so that first use, as that high wears off, you return to that baseline level. Drives that second use. Oh man, I was at a five. Everything else that I've ever done in my life gets me to an eight, except for, except for this cocaine. And that gets me to 50, just like that. That's the driver. That's the driver. But the trouble is, your body sees that. Your body sees that 50 and says, hang on, there's way too much dopamine kicking around here. I gotta stop this, I gotta slow this down. And your body stops making it in the same way that it did before. And so you come down off of that 50, and instead of going back down to a five, you go down to a four. And so you end up feeling worse off than you were before, which means that the attractiveness of that high is just that much stronger. And so you seek that high again and again. And over time, with that repeated use of whatever drug it is, those dopamine receptors, the things that listen for it and hear it in your body, they become a little desensitized to it. Right? It's like if you, if, if you spend all day on a piece of equipment without hearing protection, by the end of the day, if somebody's talking like this, can't hear them at all. You become completely desensitized to it. And so that, what was 50, the very first use, is now 45, 35, or 20. So you can see how this cycle just keeps ramping itself up, looking for that high, but you can't ever quite get there again. And with each passing attempt, your baseline just gets lower, lower, lower. You feel worse and worse. And this drives you to more and more compulsive behavior. I gotta have it. I gotta have it. I gotta find something. You've seen this, right? In your friends and in your family members. I, I just gotta have it. Driving them to more and more frequent drug use and into harder and harder drugs. And it's not very long in that negative feedback loop before the person who is addicted is not the one who's in control. They begin doing seemingly illogical things, things that don't make any sense at all, things that are very dangerous to seek out that high. And there is nothing that is out of bounds in those circumstances because there is nothing that is more important to them than finding that high again. So you see 
you see that this eventually leaves us completely unsatisfied, empty. And in that addiction, what we see is what the Bible terms idolatry, where we are seeking ultimate satisfaction and meaning in created things, rather than in the one who created all things. So whether they are substances today, carved idols in the Old Testament, right? they lie. They make promises that they cannot keep. Oh yeah, all you got to do is bow down before this statue that I made, and he'll give you everything you want. That statue has no capability to deliver on that. Oh, all you got to do is just go get yourself some drug of choice, cocaine, heroin, and, and that, that will give you everything that you desire. But instead, while they promise satisfaction and they promise happiness and joy, they deliver only heartache. It says in Psalm 135 that the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. They, those who make them, become like them. That is, they have no breath in their mouths. And so do all who trust in them. Whatever that idol is, whether it's silver and gold, or wood and stone, or molecules that you are injecting into your bloodstream, those idols will leave you dead. This is how drugs work in our distorted world. This is how sex works. This is how food works. This is how our jobs can work. They all look like they can deliver on their promises, but they cannot. They're lying to us. And no matter how much we sacrifice on their altars, they will never make us satisfied. But they will only make us slaves. Now, the secular world has a response to the problem of addiction. Anybody familiar with the 12 steps of whatever drug of choice, right? The first one says, and I'm, and I'm reading off of the ones for alcohol. First one says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. That's the first step towards recovery in this 12-step model. Says, we, were power, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Second step says, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Number three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Step four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Number five, we admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Number six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of character. Number seven, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Number eight, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Number nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Number 10, 
We continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Number 11, step number 11. We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Number 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. This is the most effective system that the world has for dealing with addiction. But if you will notice in reading through those steps, there is something critical missing there. Maybe your ears caught this as I read it. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So it relies upon a God of our own understanding. But what is it that the Bible says? In Colossians 1. Starting in verse 13. It says, He, that is God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So those 12 steps, they outline a sort of faith, but it is a faith that is completely devoid of the glorious reality of the cross, because it is not some nameless, vague God that we entrust ourselves to, but it is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who lived that perfect life that we should have lived, but we chose not to, and who died the death that we deserved. He took our place of shame so that we could share his place of glory. And friends, in his death, he paid for our sin, and in his resurrection, he has won the victory over sin and death itself. And he is coming again to enact the terms of his victory over them, to destroy them forever. Jesus Christ is the one true God, the one true man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other name, no other God of our own understanding by which men can be saved. So the 12 steps that we read there fall short in pointing people to Jesus specifically. But they do provide the framework for recovery. The framework for somebody to get beyond the throes of their addiction and get to a place where they can begin thinking clearly for themselves again. And in doing so, gives them the opportunity to pursue not a God of their own understanding, but the one true God. And it's important for us to understand how addiction works. 
how people walk out of addiction. Because we are all addicts. Because we are all sinners. We are all addicted to our sin. The addict struggle is our struggle. Magnified and amplified. Right? That was what we saw last week with mental illness. Right? Mental illness was simply a magnification of the difficulty that we all have in understanding the right way to think, the right things to believe, and the right way to go. And so in the same way, addiction is a magnification of the difficulty that we all face in struggling to overcome our sin. None of these struggles are strange to us or foreign to us, although they may take a different shape in other people's lives than our lives. It's still the same root problem. It's still the same basic problem. We are seeking satisfaction and contentment in something other than Jesus Christ. That is the addict's problem. That is my problem. That is the recurring struggle of every one of our lives. We are looking to something other than Christ. For healing, for help, for hope, for comfort, for peace. He is the only place that those things can be found. And so it's helpful, and it has been tremendously helpful for me, to look at the 12 steps of Sinners Anonymous. The first step, the first step in that is to admit that we were powerless over our sin that our lives had become unmanageable because of it. This is what Jesus says in uh, John 8, 34. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They're a sin addict. They are enslaved to their sin. And so every one of us, as we come to faith in Christ, we, much, we must reach the point that we admit that we are not in control of our lives. It is sin who is in control of our lives. And for the addict, that means that they've got to reach rock bottom. They've got to hit the point where they say, whatever it takes, I will do absolutely anything if it means that I can be free of this. Step two, we have come to believe that Jesus Christ could restore us to sanity. And step three, we have made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to, care, over to the care of the Lord. This is a difficult thing to do. <clears throat> and most likely not every one of us have done this. Because it's easy for us to kind of mess around a little bit with our sin or to get the big sins taken care of and then we can mess around with pride or arrogance or jealousy or envy. Right? We can still play with those sins a little bit. But that's, not, but that's not what we are called to do. But we are called to surrender everything, all of our will, all of our lives, our heart, soul, mind, and strength to the care of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And having done this, 
we move on to step four, where we make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, comparing our character and our nature to that of Jesus Christ. That is a terrifying project to undertake. Because we all fall woefully short of that standard. And then we admit, step five, to God, to ourselves, to another human being, the exact nature of our failures and shortcomings in comparison to Christ. And we are entirely ready. We become entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of character. Friends, this is the work that he is doing even now in our lives. If you have faith in him, you have received the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is at work within you. Cutting away everything that doesn't reflect Jesus Christ. We continue on through to step 12. Having been raised to newness of life in the Spirit, we tried to carry this message to sinners and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that we have freedom in Christ. Not just freedom from alcohol, freedom from heroin, freedom from blue bunny ice cream. But we have freedom from all sin, from all iniquity, from all transgressions, from death itself. Not by trying harder, not by doing more, but by looking to God to give us a new heart, entrusting ourselves fully to Him. Friends, He is good. His love never fails. And he equips us and empowers us for the work that he has called us to do, shaping us in the image of Christ. Now, Scripture provides some, actually one tremendously helpful tool in diagnosing this controlling influence of sin in our lives. We see it in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, where Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. There are some translations that read, I will not be controlled by anything. So as Christians, right, there is no set of rules that we must follow in order to be loved and accepted by God. There is no set of rules that we must follow to be loved and accepted by God. But we have been loved and accepted by God because Jesus has already done those things for us. There is nothing left for me to do. And it's on that basis that Paul writes here, all things are lawful. Christ has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Everything is open for me. But, I'm going to start with the second one. But, he says, I will not be dominated by anything. So the question becomes, who's in control? Who's in control of these behaviors? Who's in control around these things? Coffee. 
Take a cup of coffee. With coffee, I find that it is easier for me to be the sort of person that God has called me to be. Right? Anybody? Coffee is God's gift to us to help us on our journey to become more Christ-like. However, and, and I'm being completely serious here, however, there is a place that we can get to with that where we start saying, well, I need coffee to be that person. I need coffee or I'm going to be mean. I'm going to be rude. I'm going to be unloving. And if we're doing that, then if I am doing that, then I'm giving over mental control of my attitude and my actions to the substance. I'm not the one who's in control in that situation. Who is in control? Who's calling the shots? You ever wind up at the refrigerator and you're looking in there and you're not, you never chose to go to the refrigerator. You just ended up there. Something else is calling the shots in those circumstances. Something else is in control of you. And it is supposed to be the love of Christ alone that compels us, not the love of whatever we find inside those doors. The second diagnostic tool that we get from that verse in 1 Corinthians, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So is the behavior that I am in control of, right? Because we've already established that we must be in control of our behavior. Is this behavior that I am in control of helping me to love God, to love others, and to make disciples? We've said that those three commands sum up the entirety of our responsibility as Christians, to love God, to love others, and to make disciples. Is this behavior, is this choice that I am making helping me to do those three things better? Most behaviors that are or could become addictive in some way, shape, or form are not about helping us to follow God or to love and serve those around us but they are self-serving. They're about making me feel good. They're about satisfying our needs, wants, and desires. So am I eating this to provide good fuel for my work for the rest of the day? Or am I eating it to get a little rush and to make me feel better for a little while? It's a fine line, but it's worth It's worth asking. It's worth discerning where that line is for each one of us because we must be ruthless. We must be utterly merciless about cutting out those behaviors that control us from the small to the gigantic. Cutting out those behaviors that are not helpful to the work that God has called us to do. So we ask these questions. And when we begin asking these questions in earnest, we will find that we are not nearly as in control of our lives as we think we are. But rather, in lots of little areas, in different places in our lives, we have surrendered that control to something other than God. So what's the response there? 
whether it's ice cream or crystal meth, there is a response that is common across all of us. We've looked a couple of different times at Psalm 51. Right? You remember that psalm after David had um, been called out on his sin with Bathsheba? David was acting in that story like an addict. He, was, he pursued an absolutely nonsensical course of action, just completely going off the rails in pursuit of that perceived reward. And he paid an addict's price for it. He lost a child. And so he begins in Psalm 51 crying out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is not hiding from his sin here. But he is laying it all out there. He is laying it all out there. And crying out to God to wash him clean. He continues in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. So David has done the hard work of those first few steps of realizing that he is a slave to his sins. He is a sin addict. And he is entrusting himself to the God of creation, asking him to create in him a clean heart, to remove all of these faults and failings. He is walking through those 12 steps of Sinners Anonymous. And that is what we must be willing to do when we encounter those areas in our lives that we have surrendered control to something other than God. Now in our response to others, we take a little bit of a different track. Right? John writes in 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. There's a passage in Luke 6 that we looked at a few months back where Jesus is teaching and he says to the people, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind 
to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Our response, friends, to those who are caught in sin, to those who are the slaves of their addictions, is mercy. It must be mercy. It must be love. It must be compassion. Because if it is anything less than that, then we must question whether or not we are truly sons and daughters of God. Whether or not we have understood God's mercy. Because while we were still dead in our sins, Christ loved us. He loved us and gave himself up for us. And so our interactions with the people around us who are lost in their addictions must reflect this self-sacrificing, active, participatory love. There is no place for us to sit in condemnation and judgment. There is no place for us to cast them aside and say, well, they made their bed. They can lie in it. So did we. We made our bed. We chose sin. We chose rebellion. And even when we were dead in that sin, God loved us. And our love, our relationship with the people around us who are caught in addiction is to be the same. To love them. To show mercy to them. They may be caught in different sins than us, but we all stand just as desperately in need of God's grace. They don't deserve it. That's right. We don't deserve it either. They'll screw it up again. Yeah, they probably will. And you and I will as well. But God's love for us does not fail because it is not based on our performance. And so we must strive for our love for those in trouble to never fail as well. It is a love that neither condemns nor enables, but a transforming love that shapes us all into the image of Christ. So that is our privilege, friends, to be used by God, to be His transforming work, in, to be the hands of His transforming work in the lives of those around us, showing them a love that meets them exactly where they are, but never leaves them there. We have the privilege of coming alongside of them, providing companionship, help, support, and love as we all walk through this fallen world together in joyous anticipation and hope of the return of Christ to heal all that is broken and to restore all things to the glory of God the Father. So what is your addiction? Are you a slave to the feeling that you get from getting things done? Are you addicted to the feeling that you get when other people praise you? Are you a slave to your food? Are you a slave to exercise? Are you a slave to pornography? Are you a slave to a substance? Have you ever given up your addiction to sin? Because whatever addiction you are entangled in, whatever sin you are enslaved to, 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come to set you free. Because what follows just after John 8, 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever practices sin is a slave to sin. And then in verse 36, he says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So friends, whatever that enslavement is, small, large, general, specific, culturally acceptable, culturally unacceptable, if we are ever to be free of our sin, we must admit our powerlessness over it and cry out to Jesus Christ to set us free. Let's pray together. Father, this is our prayer. This is my prayer, God. You know. You know the things that I allow to control me. You know the areas that I am actively choosing to live in rebellion against you. But Father, I I trust I trust Jesus Christ for my freedom. I trust him to set me free from these things. And I pray that that day comes. I pray that today is that day. I look forward. I look forward to that day when we will all be free. When we will be free from the sin. When we will be free from the pain when we will be free from the brokenness of this world, and we will know fully, we will see clearly. We dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray.